Good evening. Yes, you're right, Marcel. Good evening. This is Marcel Reed, and I'd like to invite you to listen to this evening's program, which is hosted by Dr. David Moskowitz with his special guest, Ram Nadatur. Uh, Ram Nadatur is a geneticist, and Dr. Moskowitz is a nephrologist and internalist with many decades of uh, practice as well in traditional medicine, as well as looking forward into alternative ways to heal the human body. I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Moskowitz now, and he can introduce his guest, Ram Nadatur. Thank you so much, Marcel. Hello, healthcare revolutionaries. We are going to witness a healthcare revolution within the next few years. And the chief tool that's going to solve diseases for us, something which medicine has been waiting for for over two millennia, is genomics. My guest tonight is an expert in not only in genomics, but in explaining the science behind genomics. He, it is my great pleasure to have tonight Ram Natator, who not only has done experiments at the highest level um, in plants, actually, but um, also was a teaching fellow um, as a graduate student for undergraduates uh, in New Mexico and in India, and so can explain stuff um, better than anybody I know and who has recently worked for the two most famous whole genome sequencing companies in the world, Beijing Genomics Institute, BGI, um, which has become somewhat infamous recently, uh, and Nebula Genomics, uh, who happened to do my uh, whole genome sequencing, and which I found to be you know, just a wonderful company to work with who can do your whole genome sequence for $249. So I heartily recommend them. Ram, would you like to uh, say hello and tell us what a genome is? Hello, David. Well, thank you. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Okay, great. Well, uh, you know, a genome is essentially the genetic information, the entire genetic information within the human body or an organism's body, we can say. So, um, you know, I work for a company that sequences a human genome. So why, why bother? Uh, what's a genome? I mean, I've heard it's 3.3 billion letters. I've heard that the DNA in all your cells could reach from the earth to the moon, that it's a very long molecule. That is correct. (laughs) That is correct. It it could reach the moon. (laughs) But uh, in essence, your your DNA, which is your genome, uh, contains information of, uh, you know, a variety of things. And that information uh, is stored as DNA and then converted into RNA and then into proteins, 
which makes a human body or an organism function. So this DNA is stored in the form of genes and other infor information around genes that help facilitate this central dogma of life that I just described, which is DNA to RNA to protein. So is it fair to say that the genome is the master plan uh, for any organism? Yes, yes. I mean, you can say that. Uh, there will be people who dispute you, but you can say that because the genome doesn't just mean the DNA that's present. There's also information within that DNA. Um, I don't know if we'll have time to go into that, but in the sense, that is the whole field of epigenetics, which is like, you know, how, is, how your DNA is modified um, through methylation, other more uh, chemical modifications. So uh, you can say it's a master plan if you include the entire genome, which is not just DNA information, but also information within it. This gets at Lysenko and um, the idea that, uh, that genetic traits can be transmitted from one generation to another without being encoded in the genes themselves, namely in uh, the methylation patterns uh, of the histones on, uh, that, that are, the DNA wraps around and that keeps the DNA either in a closed form or an open form. Methylation pattern can be inherited, say, from mother to child. Absolutely, absolutely. That methylation pattern, the mitochondria, uh, which is transferred to a mother to a child. So all of this can be sequenced using whole genome sequencing, the service uh, that my company and my previous company, as you uh, very nicely described, offer. Uh, these whole genome sequencing services can sequence all of it, and that will be your sort of repository of information from which you can find out what's inherited, what kind of disease patterns, uh, what, what's the disease risk? I'm sure we'll go more into that, but all of these things you can discover from sequencing your entire genome. Is it fair to say that we're just at the beginning of figuring out what your, what your DNA predicts for you? Yes, yes. I think that is very accurate because, but the beginning has been long. Um, I, I would say, sort of the genetic re engineering revolution was heralded maybe even 10, 15 years ago, but you know, the transition to like widespread use has been a little slow, but the technology is growing so fast that there'll, be a, there'll come a time soon when you know, this will be part of your primary care provider's the offerings, uh, part of your annual checkup every year, things like that. And we are, I believe, uh, on the cusp of that kind of a revolution, yes. That's an incredible development in medicine. I mean, already uh, people are overwhelmed by all the lab tests they get and they don't understand. And a lot of a primary care provider's duty, which is what I do for a living, is to explain these tests to people um, What's clear is that primary care providers have no clue about human genomes or what the human genome will mean for their patient, let alone how to explain it. 
how to figure it out. Uh, there don't seem to be any people on the horizon to do that that Rosetta Stone translation. Yes, I think that that is a fair uh, that is a fair critique and comment uh, because even when it comes to I mean forget about whole genome sequencing even if, when it comes to genomic information uh, regarding the drugs you take and how your body is reacts to those drugs, which is the field of pharmacogenomics, and a pharmacogenomics test is administered. Even in that, I believe the primary care acceptance has been quite slow, and the expertise also has not, I don't know, has not spread as much. So what you describe is quite accurate. Well, in... In my experience as a PCP, um, the people who didn't do well with drugs, um, Coumadin, let's say, as a blood thinner or antidepressants or some of the other uh, pharmacogenomic um, insights that one could get as a PCP, all you had to do was just cut the dose of the drug or switch to a different drug if you got into trouble. And and so if you were starting a new drug that, uh, that might result in um, leukopenia, in a drastic decrease in somebody's white count, then you were taught just check the CBC, uh, the blood count, a week after you started. And, and if they had a horrible response, which I suppose you could predict from their DNA, then um, then just stop the drug and try another one. It doesn't seem worth it to spend $1,000 on a DNA test to be told that, um, you know, this patient is one of the 0.1% that will have a bad, uh, a bad event. Uh, so... So I think clinical medicine can do fine without pharmacogenomics, I'm afraid to say. I think um, as a clinician where genomics is going to be exciting is in predicting bad things, cancer. Because if you could predict who is going to get which cancer, then you could um, screen for that cancer um, effectively. I mean, you, you might not have to screen for all the others. But let's say somebody was going to have was going to get pancreatic cancer. They had a very high risk of it, of getting it. Then you just get an ultrasound of their pancreas every year instead of um, you know bothering with mammograms. Let's say if they were at no risk for getting breast cancer. Yes. So that's yes. that. That's the kind of use of genomics that appeals to me. Cancer would be great to catch early. Things that are currently un, untreatable, like dementia, would be lovely to you know, to predict because um, because the the genes that cause these diseases also make good drug tar targets for preventing the disease or for at least treating the, the disease. Could you explain that? Yes. So, you know, using those kind of markers, as we say, or biomarkers, you can have like widespread, I would say, knowledge or insight 
into predicting diseases. Now, we, we do administer a lot of genetic tests right now uh, which screen for diseases, um, uh, screen for other traits, all of that. But these are all piecemeal approaches, but where a whole genome sequence, you can use that uh, to sort of collate all this information together. You said pancreatic cancer, and you know we can have disease risk for all the genes that are associated with pancreatic cancer and provide a cumulative disease risk. And that we can definitely do. So, um, let's let's um, cone down a bit on um, how this is going to get done. Um, and in particular, would artificial intelligence, which everybody's talking about, could that somehow help the project? Absolutely, absolutely. It, it definitely can because a lot of these sequencing companies or even ours um, are, you know, sometimes I think of them as big data companies and not just sequencing companies because the fact that we have so much data, uh, especially regarding the genome and things within it, that contextualizing it is where the real sort of, I don't know, hot sauce lies. And artificial intelligence um, used correctly in that sort of insight and data can provide a lot of different things. So at the moment, all the associated disease risk we have are done using the publications, scientific publications are done using genome-wide association studies. So they associate genes to tell you about risk. And artificial intelligence can help us in a long way, uh, you know, and move us forward considerably, especially when it comes to sort of disease associations. So are you saying that, that artificial intelligence, AI, um, can just be like a super reference librarian? Or Absolutely. Some... So what about the idea if there are these 3.3 billion letters um, in one direction and 3.3 and billion letters that are complementary in the opposite direction, how about um, the possibility of a, some kind of supercomputer or AI holding all 3.3 billion letters in its mind, so to speak, in its, in its random access memory? in its ROM, if I may be so bold. Um, and and um, just comparing a bunch of patients to a bunch of control uh, people without the disease at every one of the, of the spots in the 3.3 billion letters at every single locus. Is that possible yet? Uh, it's not possible as of yet because the integration of AI into, like, the big data or the genome, as we call it, is still, I mean, people are still finding out how you can integrate that kind of knowledge into each locus and trying to find what you just described. But I believe we're on the cusp of that. We, we will be there. I would say I'm going to make a bold prediction in the next 10 years. We will, we will be there. 
So I hear a business opportunity for short-circuiting that process in the next five years. Yes, yes, obviously, because uh, business, <laughs> as you know, uh, is, you know, runs, uh, runs before widespread acceptance. So as a precursor to widespread acceptance, I would say there is a business opportunity in integrating AI, you know, to predict that kind of, uh, you know, uh, information at each locus, yes. So, so let's say somebody, and, you know, it, it just might be my company, Genomed, it might not be, but somebody has a, uh, a special collection of genomic variants that they've found are functional, that, they, that the variant affects um, how much of the gene is expressed, um, and is associated with disease, let's say different cancers. Um, that, uh, that could be offered to the public in a preliminary way as sort of a research trial to try to predict the cancers. And uh, people who are interested in participating in the research trial uh, could get their whole genome sequence, get their uh, cancer prediction, admittedly as a re as part of a research trial, and then could help determine whether the prediction uh, was was valid or not. You know, did it did it accurately predict the cancer they got? Did it miss another cancer that they got instead? Uh, were they able to do anything? Uh, in the first case, if the cancer was correctly predicted, do you see that as a as a possible way forward? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I find that you know uh, whole genome sequencing can be used much more in in clinical trials because you're trying to learn the profile of whatever your trial participants are. So using whole genome sequencing to not just, you know, look at an end result and see if your forecast pans out, but also, uh, you know, understand the profile of the clinical trial participants, I think whole genome sequencing would go a long way in helping assist that. Um, what do you mean by clinical profile? So basically, you know, you, what kind of health risks you have already, uh, because the drug, uh, if, if you're in a drug trial of sorts, you know, you, your, what, your candidate receptor or what the drug was made of, um, you, could be, you could be less or more sensitive to that based on your genome, right? So uh, depending on biomarkers, how those things are. So understanding that uh, through whole genome sequencing would go a long way. So um, let me just at this point um, mention why I love genomics. In 1993, so 30 years ago, um, I came across a, a variant in the genome that had been dis discovered by Pierre Corval and his group in France. And it was a variant in the angiotensin-1 converting enzyme. 
that ACE inhibitors uh, inhibit. And they found that overactivity of this enzyme, of ACE, was associated with a threefold higher rate of heart attacks in Western Europeans. And um, it, it was clear that there were lots of diseases that might be associated with excess ACE because ACE makes angiotensin II, and angiotensin II causes uh, vasoconstriction and high blood pressure. And, you know, as at a minimum, hypertrophy of the left ventricle, left ventricular hypertrophy, um, looks like it's caused by angiotensin II. And sure enough, um, almost every kidney disease, which I, uh, I'm interested in as a nephrologist, was associated, not much, but some, um, with overactivity of age. And you'd expect the association not to be terribly strong because there are many more than one gene behind a disease. There may be hundreds of genes and, and variants within a gene um, that contribute to the disease. But um, what convinced me to go down this route was, um, you know, we had evidence that overactivity of ACE was behind kidney disease. We then, um, by then, people have been using ACE inhibitors for 10 years already. So the only thing wrong was um, maybe they were using the wrong one or maybe they were using the wrong dose. And so I tried a, different, a couple of different ACE inhibitors at a higher than usual dose. And voila, uh, my very first patient on clinopril at higher than usual dose um, improved his kidney function, which I had been taught could never happen. And I've been doing that ever since. And I've published my first 1,000 patients, um, up to 4,000 patients now. But, um, you know, that's a tremendous clinical result from just a single gene, a single genetic polymorphism. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm sold. If I can prevent 90% of dialysis with just knowing a single genetic polymorphism, imagine what we could do if we found more. Absolutely. So, uh, David, I, I, I had a question for you. Um, in your experience of like trying to prevent dialysis and other means as an as a nephrologist, um, how have you used genomics to sort of you know advance that preventing dialysis specifically? So the beauty is um, that I didn't have any money, uh, so my lab was looking at the ACE polymorphism the ACE variation um, in hospital patients at the VA where I was in St. Louis and also the city hospital and also a dialysis company. So a total of about 10,500 patients. So my lab was doing that. But um, I was seeing people in clinic, and I didn't really have access to their blood or to their cheek swabs. People weren't doing cheek swabs then. And so I, I couldn't actually uh, see what their genotype was. And 
so I just wound up giving everybody the same treatment, high-dose quinepril. And amazingly, everybody improved, even though only a quarter to a third of my patients, depending on race, were um, uh, had the right genotype, had the, the excess ACE genotype, the deletion-deletion or DD genotype. But the fact that 100% of people responded uh, made it look like even if you had a tiny bit of ACE, it was too much for kidney failure. And if you could, um, you know, suppress the activity of even the low amount of ACE that you have in your kidneys, that you can save kidney function. So in this one example, I didn't have to genotype anybody which is, you know, a lucky um, a lucky circumstance. It may turn out to be that way for a few other diseases, but I think mostly we're going to be genotyping people and deciding what to do based on their actual DNA sequence. So do you think, I mean, obviously you're genotyping, you're looking at like, you know, uh, I mean, at the moment, you, it, there are SNPs and things like that. Do you think whole genome sequencing and looking at a wider array of candidates, uh, especially in, you know, trying to prevent dialysis, looking at different biomarkers, would help and go in, in that process that you're involved in? Well, I, I am curious um, because not everybody with diabetes gets uh, goes on dialysis. Only about half of people do. Um, I'm diabetic, and I keep wondering if I'm going to be, uh, you know, in the half that goes on the kidney machine. Um, and as, in terms of high blood pressure, only one in um, six people uh, go on dialysis. So, um, uh it would be nice to know um, which diabetic is at risk for dialysis and which hypertensive patient is at risk for dialysis. But practically speaking, you can wait until people get high blood pressure and then just give them high-dose quinepril at that point. They may still have a normal creatinine, normal kidney function, but you can you know, rest assured that you're protecting them as well as possible against dialysis. And so I haven't been in a rush to find um, biomarkers or, or DNA signatures of dialysis because I think I can control that. Um, and, and so I've kind of moved on to other diseases like cancer, dementia, schizophrenia, things that I don't have control over. So, so now, um, um, do you know of any plans in the industry um, to to find disease-associated variants, or are people just going to wait for the computers to get stronger? Because I know Nebula, you know, co collects uh, sort of weight and 
and height and um, I, I saw icosanoids. And they comb the literature and stuff, but none of them are, you know, they're they're kind of surrogate markers. They aren't actual diseases. And so how do you see the diseases being solved? Hello? Ram, are you, Ram, are you there? Hello? Hello? Yeah, yeah, Ram. Did you hear my question? I did. I did. You are your thinking. I I hear you thinking. Yes, I think your your question is like, what's the industry, you know, in plan or what's the, I would say, strategies to address uh, diseases of different kinds. Now I was answering that even in diseases, there are different types. There are rare diseases and there are sort of more common diseases. Um, But, you know, for rare diseases, there are rare variant association studies, which is sort of a common uh, theme among, like, not just industry, also academia. But in terms of other sort of biomarkers, there are genomics-based or genomics-driven drug discovery, uh, which is going on right now. So, I, I mean, at least I, as a, if you say, I can't, I can't say I'm an impartial viewer. As a partial viewer, I, I hope that some of those studies yield, um, you know, sort of more insight into how we can take predicting cancer or dementia forward. I'm sorry, Ram, you cut out. No, I was saying like using those kind of studies like rare variant association studies and genomics driven drug discovery, you know, hopefully some of those, I would say, insights lead to more better prevention methods for some of the diseases you talked about, cancer, dementia, um, Alzheimer's. Right. You know, my experience clinically is that if you're lucky enough to see a rare variant, um, that it actually identifies uh, that that gene is in the disease pathway. And even though most patients won't have that rare variant, assuming it contributes to the disease, it's an oncogene, it causes cancer, that inhibiting it is going to help just as the ACE inhibitor helped my renal patients, that um, inhibiting that gene product, that protein, is going to help everybody with that particular diagnosis because that pathway gets more flux through it, more traffic through it um, than it should get. And, And that's partly why the person has cancer, even though they don't have the rare variant that only a few patients have. That's been my experience. So it's a very optimistic one. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say pretty optimistic, but I am I am an optimist, and I, I hope that leads to something, yes. I have a question. Can you yes, hear ma'am. me? Perfectly. Okay. Um, so here's something that came up in my own family, and it, it – 
it ties in exactly to what you're talking about this evening. So we wanted to, to look up our family history. And, you know, we got uh, two separate tests. Um, one was showing something very different from the other. And I wanted to find out, um, has the DNA, you know, the common test, my ancestry, and you know, one, two, three, uh, are they advanced enough for us to start to figure out what lies ahead for us? And then number two is, what is the difference between DNA sequencing, genomic sequencing, and and the other where you're just looking for a specific illness? Is there a lot of difference between the two processes? Uh, well, yes. Ron, <laughs> I can take that for sure. <laughs> you're the okay, perfect person you. to answer these questions. Yes. So, okay. Because Nebula is very different from 123, from 23andMe and Ancestry. Yes. So okay. 23andMe and other sort of uh, uh, companies look for hotspots, you can say, or they look for a very minute portion of your genome. Uh, less than 1%, but we, or at least whole genome companies in general, sequencing companies in general, look for the entire genome. So we try to analyze or uh, provide data about the entire genome, that's about 100%, um, and the difference is so vast. So, you know, you, 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 know uh, you do not need to just compare it to, say, 23andMe, you can also compare it to genetic tests out in the market, which look for, which are your predictive tests. So, so if you, all those gene panel genetic tests are a mix of say 20, 30 genes and they are used to predict diseases. Now whole genome sequencing comparatively, you know, shows you the entire genome. So what is upstream of candidate genes, downstream, um, you know, associated genes that you might look for. So it, it, it talks about an entire plethora of genes and not genes, and there are so many other um, sort of predictive and like informative factors within a genome that you will not find in a 23andMe or a random genetic test. So yes, so they, to answer your question emphatically, whole genome sequencing would find all the stuff that a 23andMe can't. To, to answer your second question, Marcel, thank you very much, Ron. Um, to answer your second question, um, we don't, nobody has the, the phone books of disease genes yet. Um, they just aren't known. The diseases have been pretty well cataloged over the last two millennia, especially over the last 100, 150 years. But, um, but the connection between a person's DNA sequence and the disease is in its infancy. I mean, it's basically a blank book. And um, the hope is that that book gets filled up very fast in the next few years. And and then distributed to primary care providers who can help their patients who come in with their, their whole genome sequence and tell them, oh, you're at risk for this. Um, 
for that, and here's a drug that um, that looks like we can repurpose uh, that may have an effect for you. So just to so, add to what David was saying, mm-hmm. sorry, David, um, you know, the phone book isn't there. There are some sort of single gene disorders we already know, something like cystic fibrosis is a single gene disorder. You need to have like a mutation in both copies of your cystic fibrosis CFTR gene to have the disease. So there are diseases like that, but you know it's still minuscule compared to a lot of other diseases where you cannot pin the disease risk to one gene or a candidate gene. Cystic fibrosis is a great example. Um, The kids call it, what do they call it, cystic roses or something? So fibromas of the uterus in St. Louis, people call fibroids of the Eucharist. So (laughs) these these medical terms, you know, that. You, they don't come across that easily. But cystic fibrosis no, is a terrific not. example. Same as sickle cell. I mean, sickle yeah. cell, the, the molecular structure of the hemoglobin, of the sickle hemoglobin, has been known since uh, 1946. So it is the very first um, victory in molecular medicine. And we still don't have decent treatments and now they're uh talking about gene therapy um you know crispr and and changing a person's genes that would affect you know all future generations that come from that person and the truth of the matter is that um that ace inhibitors actually work fine for sickle cell and i published a paper with uh, mike williams that a woman who used to take four Vicodins a day in in Sacramento, California, um, once she started taking the tiniest dose inhibitor, Mavic, Trindolopril, didn't have to take any pain medicine for 11 months out of the year. And she still had pain uh, during December when it was cold. But other than that, her sickle cell was essentially cured. And, and so the idea of gene therapy is an absolute abomination because, um, you know, not only because we always make mistakes. And my own bias is never to use a drug with a half-life longer than 24 hours. You wait three half-lives and the drug is gone. That's why I don't like antibodies because their half-life is a month. So if you would take Cosentix or any of the ones on TV and you have an allergic reaction to the antibody, you could easily die because um, it's going to, you can't dialyze it off. It's a giant antibody and it takes at least three months to get over the effect. Well, now look at gene therapy. You're trying to permanently alter a gene in somebody's germline DNA in all the cells of their body. And if something goes wrong, not only will it affect them, but it will affect all their offspring. It is absolute nonsense to pursue treatments like that and ignore um, effective, safer cures, which brings me back to my beef with healthcare. 
which, you know, I ventilated on uh, two months ago about dialysis. What's the point of finding cures at all if they're only going to be ignored by the healthcare system? Yeah, but I think um, Ram referred to it, Ram referred to it earlier when he was saying um, that treatments being accepted really relied on businesses' ability to profit from it. Those aren't his exact words, but that's what I pulled away from it. And I think about that in almost everything in life. I mean, if there's no way to profit from it, it doesn't seem to last long. So well, I, is, is I think that in, in, uh, I, I hate to interrupt, but I think in every revolution, they're winners and they're losers. In this revolution, which is going to cut healthcare costs because it's going to prevent diseases, it'll cut healthcare mm-hmm. costs drastically, maybe from four trillion a year to one trillion a year. Um, hospitals are going to go under, um, but uh, clinics, primary care docs. Uh, are going to flourish. Subspecialists are going to go under. I mean, I can I can eliminate my entire subspecialty of nephrology right now. Uh, academic medicine is going to have to learn how to prevent disease instead of staffing intensive care units in its hospitals. The NIH can easily be disbanded. Its goal has been met, and its function is obsolete now. Um, and uh, basically, the, the pharmaceutical industry is going to collapse as we get more and more generic drugs that work perfectly fine. I think there will cease to be a big incentive uh, to spend money on healthcare when most diseases can be prevented. And I'm hoping that um, maybe it'll be followed by decreases in the arms industry as well, and we can start spending money on the other things like primary school education and arts in in every neighborhood, you know, stuff that benefits people instead of kills them. So, but but if mm-hmm. I may offer a contrarian opinion uh, to what Marty said, uh, it's it's the I would say you know although you know how we treat diseases is dependent on business or how we profit from it or how, you know, at least the pharmaceutical and biotech industry profits from it. I would say, at least from a sequencing point of view, the current state of where we are in terms of sequencing and sequencing technology and where it's going has all been dependent on considerable investment in research and development. So to keep that chugging along, uh, and to have technology provide more insight, because I would say, you know, your genome is a single thing. If you sequence your genome once, that should be like your calling card. You, you're not, your genome is not going to change next year or the year after. But what might change, at least in the sequencing technology, is that the more this technology improves, the more insight you get, like methylation, like things like within your genome. So I would say all of that requires considerable investment in research and development. So uh, I would not dismiss profits uh, or at least 
you know, gaining from business, gaining from health insights that easily, because that is what uh, fosters research and development in the future. Right. I, I think uh, whole genome sequencing companies are here to stay. And, and even though they'll only do a one-off, um, there's 7 billion people on Earth that, that they can sequence. Um, I think sequencing children is going to come next because there's the rare cancer um, that parents are going to want to pick up before it happens. Um, I, I think public health companies like Genomed are going to emerge um, as, you know, the winner and, and the leader in the, revol- in the healthcare revolution. I think we're the small mammalian rodent that is going to um, outlive the dinosaurs, the you know big pharma and the hospitals that currently rule the ecosystem. I think the future is very bright for um, for a, a true public health approach, as opposed to a kind of an anti-patient approach, which the current system seems to have embraced. This is just fascinating to me. I'm absolutely a civilian in this. But like all of us, um, since COVID-19, I've been surrounded by a lot more illness than I had ever been exposed to before, and it's made me have to think about things a, a little differently. And I can't think of anything that people would be more interested in right now then this health revolution, just a personal story, I was visiting a family member, um, an an elderly member of my family, and someone had come in from a plane where they didn't cover themselves, and they brought COVID in. And this thing that we all thought was kind of behind us was suddenly in the room with us again, you know, and masking and who didn't wash their hands. and, uh, And the whole thing blew up. And I think every one of us, for at least three days, were back in what if. And I don't think that's a place that we had spent much time in before. We all had been fairly healthy, and we just hadn't spent much time there. I think this is something that would be a great ongoing topic, not just about a specific sequence, but how sequencing can actually help people. I would love to know what I could avoid in the future. Uh, I would love to know that my children could avoid it. Um, I just don't think there's much information out there, and I don't think it's given to people in an accessible way. And you're tired of hearing me say this, Dave, but it doesn't matter what you know. It matters how many people you can teach it to. Um, So that's what I'm interested in. How can this knowledge get out to people in the way they can understand it? I wouldn't have wasted money on those other DNA tests if I knew that this test was here and that it would do 100% as opposed to just a little. But I don't know because I just don't think there's enough accessible knowledge. Well, there's zero knowledge. It's, it's not your fault. 
Um, it, <laughs> oh, it, it is. It's it's confusing that Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry are touting, you know, what they're giving to you with their one percent or less of the of the genome. They are claiming an awful lot, um, and it seems like the the Federal Trade Commission doesn't uh, hold them to any kind of honesty standards. But in terms of COVID, because we're about to have COVID again, um, my wife and I got it uh, two weeks ago. It's it's a bad flu. It just drags on. And I've been treating people uh, with quercetin, um, which we've talked about, because it blocks the mast cell. There's a receptor on the mast cell that seems to be blocked by quercetin, and this mast cell receptor seems to be activated especially strongly by uh, the coronavirus. So I use quercetin. I now use an antibiotic, a ZPAC or Augmentin, because your phlegm turns uh, yellow or brown, and, and you know, meaning that there's bacterial superinfection. Didn't used to be the case three years ago. People's sputum uh, stayed clear. And mm-hmm. um, Paxlovid, Paxlovid is on the market now, which seems to help. So I, it's a three-drug approach now to COVID. Still makes it last for a week, but at least you don't get worse and go to the hospital, which you should avoid oh, yeah. at all costs. Yeah. yeah, my aunt is really elderly. She's in her 90s, and, and she said she's fine. Um, but they did treat her. Right away. There was yeah. no fear like there was years ago, but they treated her right away, and she's fine. Um, yes. But it That's just... great. No, you have to jump on Yeah, yeah the specter just... Uh, the specter was just there again in the room with us all, and I think that's what I was referring to. But I want to thank the two of you. Do you have um, any hopes to resurrect this explanation or... Would you encourage people to listen to this episode, or, or would you and Ron consider um, explaining more about this on another episode? Well, I, I think it would be extremely exciting um, to update our progress because I hope to work with Ron and either his company or other companies like his um, to bring this new era in healthcare uh, into being. And it's going to take a little while. I doubt if we can do much in a month. But every <laughs> once in a while, I'd like to update, you know, any disease that we've made. I, I'm um, actually talking to an uh, artificial intelligence bioinformatics group in Cluj in Romania at a medical school. And we're hoping to bring this cancer prediction test to market within a year. Um, so that'll be good news when it's finally done. I've been working on it for 20 years. Oh, my goodness. That would be wonderful news. So you can actually plot out which people are more likely to get cancer than others. Yeah, and which cancer. So, yeah, there are two, two decision modes. Uh, the first is, there's apparently a big difference between cancer and, and non-cancer. 
at least mm-hmm. for the six tumors that we've got. <clears throat> and then within those six, you can actually um, narrow down which of the six somebody's likely to get. I think it's going to be a hazier which of the six. But cancer versus non no cancer, I think, is a pretty clear distinction already. Absolutely. My goodness. I have no idea what this brought. All I knew about it was, was the few little DNA tests I had taken. And, of course, you always hear something in passing on the news, really uh, confusing and, if not confusing, then scary. <laughs> so to say uh, genomics and AI in the same sentence, it brings up all of these old movies they had about, you know, robots taking over and mad scientists, you know, uh, changing you into something you never were and didn't want to be. Um, but I think this evening, because I actually am starting to understand this world, which I'm very happy about. I want to thank you for your show this evening. I want to thank you, Ron, for being a guest on the show. And I hope that you will consider uh, coming back in the future. And perhaps, um, Ron, you might consider speaking about this with, um, with Dave at one of our summits. I think this is interesting and new and something people would be very interested in learning about. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to speak about it. And I hope, I hope uh, or we advance fast enough to come back on your show and update you on some of the, I would say, uh, the advances, not just in the technology, but how we counsel people, how we educate people in using the technology to yes. sort of improve their own health. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And just a point of clarification, this isn't my show. This is Dave's show. I just host it. But this is Dave's show. (laughs) Thank you. That is very gracious of you. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Well, the two of you should get together and come back and do this. Of course, Dave, I'll be speaking to you in another month. I want to keep up with what's going on. And thank you for being kind enough to explain this where the average person can understand what you're saying and it alleviates some of the fear. Because we are scared of it. But thank you very much. No, no fear. But I'll tell you what's good about AI and genomics in the same sentence. It gets investors very interested. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> I'm tired on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you have any contact information you'd like to give anyone about your corporation? Yes. So, yeah, I am. Yeah, so I am with Nebula Genomics. I, I, uh, I, I'm the business development executive there. Uh, you can reach me at R Natator. That's R N A D A T H U R at nebula.org. So if you have any questions about what we discussed in the show or if you have anything to say about whole genome sequencing or you're interested in the service, you can please reach out to me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Marcel, thank you. And I have to say I haven't seen anything cheaper or more reliable than Nebula Genomics. And I would um, urge everybody who has 
$249 and is like a baby boomer and doesn't want to die quite so fast to get their whole genome sequence. It takes about three months to get it back. But still it's worth it because we got the other back and it did nothing but confuse us. So thank you very much. That is it for this evening's program. You can join us on the third Thursday of every month. The reason that we moved back to the fourth Thursday is because of the summit. Um, but the third Thursday of every month, we're going to have Dr. Moskowitz here. Hopefully the guest is interesting as long. And they will be telling us about the medical revolution. And I look forward to speaking to you again next month. And thank you both so much for being on this evening. Thank you, and David. Thank you, Ron, and thank you, Marcel, as always. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.